All right. Uh, today on Merchants of Change, we're visited by former Mr. Millis, Chris Ward, football player from Bates. We get to learn a little bit about his journey from a big company to a small startup and a 10-year run at Turbonomic before joining the exciting Vercel, who just raised a Series D at $150 million at a $2.5 billion valuation. I'm J.R. Butler, co-founder of The Shift Group, and you're listening to Merchants of Change. This is a podcast about transferring the skills and behaviors we acquire as athletes into being a professional technology salesperson. Each week, we'll introduce you to a top performer who will help us understand how they became professional merchants of change. Top kid. How we doing up there, y'all? How we doing, boys? Good, good, good. Excited for this one. Uh, We got a a Massachusetts football player in the house, so that's right up my alley. That's right, baby. That's right. Chris Ward coming in from Vercel. Chris and I have a lot of history, so I'm definitely excited for this. Chris is a phenomenal sales leader, athletic background. I know he's got some great stories to share with us. Um, So let's, let's just get right into it. John, I know you're you're coming from like a the uh, a league right near Chris. You guys kind of grew up in the same area, Massachusetts. Why don't you start off asking asking a little bit about Chris's uh, athletic background? Yeah, that's perfect. So, Chris, uh, I remind me what what's the league? What's the league Millis is in? I grew up in Mansfield, down four ninety five. Oh yeah, I know Mansfield well. Now we're in the Tri Valley, and I do have an athletic background. I wouldn't say I'm an athlete. I had to rely. <laughs> My brains and my strength and some other strategies, um, <laughs> but it's, I'm happy to be here, though. Uh, we're, we're pumped to have you because usually, you know, JR's uh, t- talking usually to hockey players, so it's good to have you on here. Uh, I grew up playing. I played left tackle since the day I was born in Mansfield, so I played football, but I never touched the ball. Um, yeah, That's, and, I played um, football uh, and basketball mainly in high school, and I went back and forth between baseball and track. And I played football for two years in college, and then the concussions caught up to me. So I actually started playing rugby because I actually got to touch the ball. Surprisingly, there's a lot less concussions in rugby as well. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I, I, uh, when I stopped playing football, the rugby coach, I think he called me the next morning and tried to convince me to play rugby. But uh, yeah, so we're on the same page. And what's so what's it like growing up in Billis? I know you guys, you played like Norton and Bellingham and like. Dyke Rehoboth, those types of teams like uh, yeah, all around Medway, Medfield, Hoppington. Uh, we are by far the smallest town, and we had this this motto: small school, big family. Like I graduated with sixty nine people, and like oh, wow. after I left, um, I think there was sixteen people that played football my senior year. Um, and two years after I left, we had to hook up with another town just to keep the program going. Um, but like. It was like that. It was just a big fish in a small town, and I loved it. Yeah, it's kind Mr. Of- Mr. Millis. Mr. Millis. Uh, first ever Mr. Millis, which was a, kind of a pageant for guys. So it was not that cool on paper, but we took it pretty serious back then, and it was a good time. Well, that's that's cool. I always I always like that because um, Millis is like to me. You know, growing up in Mansfield, we always think of Foxborough, North Attleboro, and stuff. But Millis, Medway, Medford—they're all kind of like tucked away 
right off the highway in there. I don't even know how to get to Millis, but I know I know where Millis is. Yeah. If that makes any sense. <laughs> it takes fifteen minutes for Foxborough. Yeah, yeah, you're right there. And we and I hate Foxborough, so I have a, I have a soft spot for Millis. Yeah. But anyways, what so you grew up with sixty nine kids you graduated with. So what kind of student were you in uh in your class at Millis? I was a great student. I'm t- I credit that I had a twin sister who was like straight A's. I was like straight B pluses. She was a three sport captain. I was captain football my junior and senior year, played basketball, but like National Honor Society on all like the leadership councils and stuff like that. I was like very embedded in the community. Yeah, I would would say you have to be because Bates is a, a great school. Great school. Very, I actually did a recruiting trip up there. I did went up to Bates and Bowdoin and did all the kind of NESCAC schools in Maine when I was looking at schools. And I, I knew uh, a couple guys that went to Bates and they were for football. They were a few years older than me, but they were wicked smart guys. So what was, yeah. what was that like? It was good. Like, I won't lie, a couple of years before I got there, I think Bates broke the NCAA record for consecutive losses in football. So, like, <laughs> the football program, <laughs> like, wasn't that successful. But, like, when I think back to it, like, I think about all the relationships I formed and people I met and like, it's the first time where like the, uh, a sport became more of like a job. And I felt like I took it a lot more serious with like the demands that it had. But at the end of the day, we went on, got a ton of wins, but like we had a great time. Did they really, they set the record for most losses. Yeah, it was tough. It was like, I don't even know how many years in a row we, they didn't win a game. Um, and then we got there and uh, my two years there, I think we went two and six each year because we only play other NESCAC schools. There was no like playoffs. There's nothing beyond that. Um, and yeah, I mean, the Amherst and the Williams of the world tend to get like better recruiting classes. But um, yeah, we still had a lot of fun. They actually had a, a couple winning seasons years ago. Um, and they're trying to rebuild, but we'll see. Yeah. In what position were you at Bates? I was all across the offensive line. I uh, played tackle. I played guard, played little center. Um, I started uh, my sophomore year. It was when I first got a lot of playing time. Um, but yeah, I, mostly guard, I'd say. Yeah. So what'd you, what'd you like better, playing at Millis or playing at Bates? Millis, by far. It wasn't only like, but like, we didn't win that much at Millis. We only had like 16 kids playing. I think it was like, my generation of Millis, like, we just, it, like, when you only have that many kids in your class, you really need people to, like, pick football or soccer. But my generation, like, all the kids and the best athletes pick soccer. And, like, we were, like, in states in soccer, but we just made the uh, football team suffer. But, like, what I loved about Millis was, like, the culture on the team. Because, like, we still didn't care. And, like, at the end of the day... We might not win the team battle, but like we would just focus on the individual battles and we'd celebrate things like that because like we didn't have much. I remember football camp going against towns like Foxborough and Natick um, at that football camp in Wayland. Uh, I don't know if you ever went to that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, what was that like? I, I forget the name of it, but I went there. It's like touch football. Like I, I think it yeah, was. Something like that, but we still like went through line drills. And I remember like we would beat up on all these big towns. But, like, the thing is, we had three really good kids. They had 40. So, like, that's just how it kind of worked. But uh, it was yeah. a great culture on the team. And, like, 
wasn't always like that. Both my brothers were football captains. I have a brother four years older and ten years uh, and uh, eight years older, and like both of them won Super Bowls and like did great. But I just suffered from uh, my class chose to play soccer. Yeah, like me and Jr. I know Jr. had some big wins at Holy Cross for hockey, but we celebrate glory days in the Hockamock League and playing high school sports. I think everybody from Massachusetts is like that, though. You know, there's like, it's a different type of mentality playing high school sports. The the rivalries are so much deeper, too. And also, like, the world's so small then. Like, I remember it wasn't until I got to Bates I realized, like, how much bigger the world was. I was like, I remember hating all these towns surrounding me. And then you get to school and you meet, like, one of my good buddies from Pakistan. And I'm like, okay, well, who cares about Medway? Like, this is, like, <laughs> <laughs> this is a whole different world for me. Yeah, I, I found the same thing. I mean, playing at Mansfield, we had a, uh, to give you some idea, we had about 112 kids on our varsity football team. I, I was a captain and I had the same number as some sophomore. And they announced the sophomore in the in the state championship game instead of me because we both were number fifty. It's like there's so many, I think we had six buses taking people to games and like yeah. you know thirty kids played. But uh, that's that's funny. You're you're spot on with that. You know who cares about Medway? I, Jr. and I learned that firsthand at Holy Cross. Understand? That's funny. The world's a lot bigger. Yeah. What what's your what's your best memory from your playing career, Chris? From all the sports. Other than Mr. Mellis. Other than Mr. Mellis. Like, like, you want my real answer? My favorite memory from playing any sports? Yeah. The game-winning shot in a intramural playoff basketball game. <laughs> I was like, the, I mean, I, don't, I was running. like I don't, like, run with the ball. I don't pass the ball. I was always in a position that, like, like didn't get a ton of shine. So, like, that was the only time I, like, really, like, had something cool happen. But, like, when I think back to college or high school, it's hard to think of like, I get, I get a sophomore in high school. I got um, uh, all-star as a sophomore in the league. And that we, we have, we were actually really good my freshman and sophomore year. So like, that was cool. And that recognition was cool. Being the first ever uh, junior captain was cool. But like, I just think back to like having dinners with my friends. Like those are always my like most fondest yeah. memories and like, Maybe it's the concussions pushed out all the playing memories, but like I don't know. That's what like always rings to me. Yeah. So when you when you were studying at Bates and when you got to Bates, did you have any clue what you wanted to do after college? I knew things I didn't want to do anymore. So I remember growing up and I wanted to be like a firefighter because my dad was a firefighter. His dad was a firefighter. His dad's dad was a firefighter. My uh, brothers both became teachers, and I thought that would be cool. But when I got to Bates, it was the first time I ever saw, like, wealth. Like, the, the, my um, roommate had a BMW. It was the first time I've ever seen a BMW. His dad was the corporate lawyer of Kellogg's. And I was just like, this is such a different world. And I remember also during college, I worked at a high-end moving company where we were delivering to, like, the famous athletes. We delivered to Tom Brady's house right on the Com Ave at the time. We went to... um uh paul pierce's house in lincoln we delivered to the aerosmith um drummer's house and like the ceo of bose in south dartmouth at a 25 million dollar house and like so i'm in college and it's the first time i've seen like 
actual wealth compared to like how I grew up and like the life I was accustomed to. And then I'm also working at a high end moving company, like going to these properties. And like, I remember like put this kind of determination to me, like, why can't I have these nice things? So like, that's where like, I was thinking, how do you get these nice things? And I thought sales would be like, the best path. I was a sociology major. I was going to be a sociologist. <laughs> I don't know if you had thoughts on that, JR. But like, like JR. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know the path. Um, but I remember like weighing between like healthcare sales and tech sales and deciding to go down the tech sales path because I was more interested in tech and I thought I'd, be, I'd enjoy learning it more. So, so you, you, you did? Yeah, go ahead, JR. You knew in college you wanted to do tech sales, Chris? No, I will say, it wasn't like a, a something I did right away because I graduated in 09. It was like a market crash. Things were not good. I remember I had a kind of a temporary job like managing a college bookstore. But I had uh, been trying to get into tech sales uh, since I graduated. Yeah. Really? Yeah. How'd you find out about it? it? Just friends that graduated before me and that were doing really well. And I ended up getting an internship at Oracle from someone I played football with. His name's Coleman Peak. He had just done an internship at Oracle, then got hired full time. And he could basically like just back hire and backfill his role. And he thought of me because he knew I was trying to get into the field. Um, that's how he started at Oracle with a six month internship. So you did like more about who you knew graduating. Did you have any other kind of ideas or strategies on getting a job or were you just networking with some of the guys you knew that? So I did know I wanted to get into tech sales, but like that's the limit of like the filtering I did for a job, which I'm, I'm I enjoy the experience I had at Oracle, but like you got to think I'm going from one of the smallest public schools in Massachusetts to a very small uh, liberal arts college to then one of the biggest companies in the globe, like 180,000 plus employees or so. Yeah. So like when I got there, it was not me. And like granted now, like, what I do credit those six months with was like, it solidified, I wanted to stay in tech sales, but I also had buddies around Boston. I had one, um, his name's Ted Bronstein. He worked at this company, Brightcove, which you guys might be familiar with. Back yeah. then, super early startup. I had another buddy at HubSpot, which back then was a super early startup. This is like 12, 13 years ago. Um, and I remember whenever I would hang out with them, and if we were with their colleagues, it was like I didn't exist. And I remember I'd get like super annoyed because like I'm not part of the conversation and like they're just going raving about like, oh, I, I got this promotion. I traveled here. We closed this deal. I didn't have that at Oracle. And I realized I wasn't bad at them. I was just jealous because like I didn't care. Like that wasn't the mentality at such a large company. So now I'm like, I don't want to work for. And I remember at the end of my internship, I was getting job offers at Oracle to sell their hardware, Sun Microsystems, and I was like, absolutely not. Like, I need to go into a industry that's growing like this at a much smaller company. And I looked at virtualization, the cloud, security, and I tried to look at startups. And that's what eventually I got lucky. I talked to a recruiter who had just met uh, Jimmy Mack, like a couple of weeks prior in like turbo was the exact type of company I was looking for. Maybe earlier stage startup than I was really looking at, but it ended up all working out. So Chris, um, can you, can you talk a little bit more about this? Because I think it's very interesting for some of our listeners. Like I did not find my way into tech sales in college. I was trying to be an accountant or finance person on wall street. Right. 
And you knew about it, I would say, earlier in your days at Bates. And you knew you wanted to get into it, but then you, you got into a big corporation, realized you didn't want that pretty quickly. So a lot of our listeners are thinking, okay, I, I want to go into Texas, right? Like they want to be in software yeah. center now. Now it's a high paying, everybody knows about it. It's a big time job. So a lot of people are trying to break in, but everybody's thinking big company or small company. So can you yeah. talk a little bit more about the differences there? I think that's important. Yeah, I think it's important like to do some self-reflection and like, think about things you're interested in and like think about sports. Like I couldn't imagine a different like upbringing I had and like giant teams or things like that. And like it went to such a small school. And I like, I was, I credit my mom for a lot of this. So both of my parents are from Dorchester. My mom wasn't college educated. She just worked straight out of high school. Um, my father was a firefighter, but I, I remember in high school, my mom always being like, Christopher, math or computers? One or the other, you got to do, and I sucked at math. So like, and I was like that just kind of stuck with me. And she wasn't wrong. I said, I credit her all the time. Like she didn't say anything beyond get into computers, something computers. And like, I'm not a programmer. I'm not a developer. I'm like nothing of that sort. So I was like, like, what can I do to be within tech and like do well in this industry? And I also like just looking at people that graduated before me, like that's what also the credit from like going to such small schools is like, you really know a lot of people, not just in your grade, but people that are older than you and you see how they're doing and what they're doing and you can network with them as well. But like, I think at the end of the day, like it depends, like, what do you, do you have a growth mindset? Like, do you, do you really want to like make an impact or be a number? Like the thing about Oracle is like, Hey, here's the template for your job. Do this every single day. And if you hit these metrics, you can apply to this job after X amount of time. And I didn't like that. I was just like, I want to come in like a bat out of hell and like start like having an impact immediately and like help mold a company and like have a purpose. And like, that's what kind of drove me. You definitely did that at Turbo, Chris. You were really early there but before me. Um, I didn't realize that it was a recruiter that got you there. Um, can you just talk about like, you know, the, the early days of Turbo and like what that 10 year that was a 10 year run. It was pretty, pretty incredible. I talk about it a lot with our candidates, but I think it's good to, for them to hear from somebody else about like what it was like in that environment and like what were the, the best things about it. Yeah. And, uh, and the worst I, things about it. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a long list on both sides, but I think the end justify the means. So, like, I do value that experience more than anything. It's what helped build my career. But I think about, when I got there, like I knew what I was signing up for. Like I didn't, I didn't, but like I walk in into my interview and I still remember I walk in Jimmy Max, like, well, you read a white paper. So you're hired. If you want the job, you just got to let me know in a couple of days. I was like, it was completely disarming, but like there was only 15 people at the company then and they were doing about a hundred K in revenue. Um, didn't think when I ended up leaving was closer to 200 million in revenue, 750 employees, and obviously a great exit with IBM. But I started off like brown floor, like SDR, just banging the phones. And I remember I told myself, like, you have to have a mentality about getting out on the skinny branch because that's the, that's the only reason you should be joining a startup is if you're going to continue to push yourself and not like, not need to be like 
pushed or like have obviously you need help along the way, but you have to have that determination. And I remember on my third day, right before a, um, uh, or like next training, there was like seven minutes in between. And Jimmy asked, does anyone want to make some cold calls? And I, my hand went up before I even knew it. And I was like, you idiot. And like, I'm already like sweating, freaking out, but I'm like, seven minutes before the next training, like no one's going to ask, well, like it's cold calling. Like what are the chances? Obviously on my fourth dial, someone answers and I actually like schedule the demo. It's like, that's the goal of the role. And like, everyone's like, holy shit, look at this kid. Like he's nasty and stuff. It was like the best and worst thing that could have happened because for three months after that, I didn't schedule another call. So like everyone thought it was real. But like I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't like we didn't do any cold calling at Oracle. This was before they actually had their whole like business development program in place. Like I was the only guy in Burlington that was a like a BDR. I forget what uh, we called us a business development consultant there. Um, and I remember those first three months putting so much pressure on myself because like I was trying to learn how to cope. Because I was like, I, it's, I'm in tech now. I got to know everything. But then, like, I started reading sales books, and like, Jim was such a great mentor. I remember he put a mirror on my desk and told me to smile into it when I'm dialing. And like, these things sounded corny, but like, in the sales books, I'd go right to the finally, I could tell, like, that I don't need to learn how to code. I need to stop being scared shitless in the first once that phone starts ringing. So like I started reading all these things and like thinking about like saying nice things and positive things to yourself as the phone's dialing and just like getting down that first sentence, have an inflection in your voice and stand up because that opens your airways, like all these little tactics. And this is what like, this is why I love what you guys are doing at shift because like that's how an athlete approaches things. Like, it's like, how do I get a better swing? How do I get a better shot? How am I more efficient with my time? How do I get lower? What, like, what's my leverage like when I'm on the line? Like, how do I get stronger? Like, this is how I approach the problem. And once I had that first really good call, it just blossomed from there. And I remember I, I ended up becoming a sales manager uh, within like six months or so. But at the time, sales managers manage SDRs and like, it got to a point where I had seven SDRs underneath me in 70 opportunities I was running. And I was like, Jim, like, we got to think about how to redo this because this isn't, this isn't going to scale. So I built the first SDR program, did that for a year from through that from like zero to 45 people. Then I built our first post sales team and the customer experience team, our CSMs. Cause like something that I was like very attracted to was like the autonomy to like build my own teams. And like, I just kept thinking like, where do my skills help apply to solve like big problems within the business? Um, and I did the post-sales stuff for a while. Is that like, we always ask like, what, like, like, you know, your superpower, like a unique skill that you've developed specifically that makes you successful. Would you say, what would you say yours is like when it comes to this like idea of building? I think... I I go through this like active role of like taking myself out of the business and looking down with a bird's eye view. And I also like I purposely form relationships across the business with people on the front lines with every single group because like that's how you get a lot of other data. And then I just look at it from like that perspective. Like 
from all these different teams, how are they working together? How are they contributing to what our customers need? How is information getting to our customers? How is information information traveling within all these different teams? So like, I just, I feel like that's something I just put a lot of effort into doing. Um, and I do it consistently as well to like keep pivoting, like how can we always get better as a team and our processes? Now we all work together with the customer in mind at the end of the day. I think, Chris, uh, you hit on something when you said like, you know, you just volunteered to do a cold call and then you get fast forward to building teams, right? Like, can you talk a little bit about um, just just that journey, right? Like, I think a lot of people, um, when they get into sales, they think, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to be making phone calls every day for the rest of my life, which, you know, a good salesperson should be on the phone all the time. But like, how did you get from, you know, making a cold call to where you are today? in in terms of just what mindset did you have to get you there so i i think it was so much less about like thinking about how am i going to be the best manager like how am i going to be the best individual contributor i always thought like how can i become a better leader that like helps this company and i never thought like in an individual contributor role like i could have much influence like i could have closed big deals which would be good for the company but like what I liked doing was helping people's careers grow. And like, that's what like had me like focus. When I took a step back, it was like, what's the biggest effect I can have on this business? Initially, when it was like managing SDRs, it's like, how can I teach everything that I learned in this role and then help people grow to like find their own, like, because you still have to like, you, you kind of steal all the best things that you've learned from all these people, but you need to apply yourself to that. And like, and also, like, I think it's a very stressful role. It's like the hardest, like, I'd say it's one of the more, like, difficult businesses to get into. It's like, it's it's very, like, non-forgiving and, like, there's a ton of rejection. It's almost like, like you have to be, like, a, such a mentor, like, help people really, like, get through all that. Because, like, at the end of the day, like, helping them focus on how they're getting better and, like, all these little tactics that help me, like, that's what I felt like I could share. And then the confidence of building that business from the ground up gave me the confidence to start the next business within Turbo, which was our post-sales team. Because I also, what I noticed in the business was we started, once I started managing the SDR team, we were able to get people promoted within three months. Because at the same time, we had great leaders like JR in sales management. So I knew my job was to drive as much activity to the business get them as equipped as possible within the SDR role and then passing them off to like someone like JR, he's going to teach them everything he can about sales. And considering I had done a lot of selling at Turbo prior, like I was handing them off with a little bit more knowledge than uh, they would have had in the first place. Um, but once we started promoting people so quickly, we started having so many customers come on and like territories were getting small so quickly and like customer go from person to person to person I noticed like no sales rep would ever talk to their customers. I also noticed in the industry, like there was this giant change going from a perpetual uh, software model to a subscription model. So like thinking like in my career, in my interests, like how can I like help grow this in like, like start being like, or ha like have a bigger role just within the industry. I jumped on that as an opportunity to like start that post sales team. I did that for like, the next six years at Turbo. I think that's really interesting, Chris, because the way you described it, and I don't know, I don't know Jimmy Mack, but you know, it sounded like when you met with him, he 
instantly saw you and became a mentor to you. And then you grew your career out becoming a mentor for other SDRs or ADRs as they came into sales. And JR, actually, he and I were talking recently and showed me a video of one of his early day business development presentations where he's, you know, he's the new kid on the block. And now he's, you know, run organizations 10 times the size of, you know, the, the group he was a part of then. So he has grown through mentoring younger kids coming on. You've grown the same way. Jimmy Max done it. I've done it. So, you know, when I think about it from a sales and a sports perspective, it's like when you get in, you're like the freshman, the freshman at base. And, you know, when you're getting out, you're like the junior, the senior, and you're trying to bring up these freshmen. Um, I don't know if that's the right way to think about it, but like, what, it's also, it, yeah. One, one thing I'm JR, I'm curious if you remember this, but I feel like I had a pretty good eye for talent in like the recruiting side and stuff. And like that also applied not just to people on my team, but people within the business. Cause I remember when JR joined, I was like, this guy's going to be unbelievable. And do you remember I spent like the first two weeks with you hours a day until you learned the complete demo faster than anyone's ever learned it? And like, I wouldn't do that for people that wouldn't put in that same effort, but I would do that for people on the team as well. Like, and I was very honest with that. I was like, guys, I will stay here until midnight if you're willing to put in the work as well. But like, you have to be getting better. Like if, if we go over something for eight hours one day, we come back the next day and everything's gone. Like you're not, you, like, that's actually just like an acumen issue. But like, I remember seeing JR and just seeing how special he was and him going over his background. I'm like, he can help this business grow. Like I need to teach him the tech because that's the only thing that he didn't know yet. So what'd you look for? What, what did you see in JR? No offense, Jay. <laughs> my smile. It was my smile. <laughs> fell in love with those eyes. No. His, G- his GPA? Was it his GPA? <laughs> first, first, I knew uh, we have some mutual friends. My, my best friend in college is actually brother-in-law. So one of his best friends in college. So like... John knows Liam too. Oh, okay. Yeah, Liam. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, Richard's twin sister, they're married. And like, I remember Liam, like gave me a heads up that you were joining. And then when you joined, I could tell like the, there's the confidence, the storytelling and just like, I don't know, you just like see this special, like, I don't know what it was like. I mean, yeah, confidence, the storytelling. And like, I could tell like you were so determined and I could also tell you were going to make some of the other sales managers jealous in competition helps the business grow. And I was like, this is going to be unbelievable. (laughs) (laughs) In in my role then, like I just kind of served everyone. So like, I was just like, this is going to be the best. Like, let's get him like as good as he can be as quickly as possible. And he's going to take the reins from there. And like, it's going to help the business grow. They they had a rule when I joined John that you couldn't, you couldn't make phone calls until you knew the demo. Like, like you literally couldn't get on a call with a customer until you knew the demo. And I was coming from selling our competitor VMware and I had like 40 customers in new England. And I was like, I need to get on the phone with these guys. And I was like, Chris was like, oh, dude, I'll teach you the demo. And I was like, this kid that I knew from EMC had had the record. He did it in his, he did it like, like Wednesday of his third week. <clears throat> so, and you had to give it to the CEO. Like you literally had to do the demo for the CEO in order to get on the phone with the, with the, with a customer. So I told Ben my first day, I was like, Hey, I want to block 30 minutes on your calendar on Friday. We're going to, I'm going to do the demo for you. And Chris literally stayed with me every night 
and like walked me through every section of the demo. And I put together like my own version and story around it. And then I did it right away. And, and it was, it, it remained the record forever. Um, Cause eventually they stopped doing that. Um, but you know, Chris, to your point though, like I, I, I never really thought of this till you said it. Mentorship is a two way street. Right. And I think that's really, really important. It's important for what we do, especially because we give these kids a really good foundation and I can tell almost immediately which kids are bought in based off like how quickly they go through our content and how, and how bought in they are with like the assignments and the tests that we give them. So like the reality is, and I don't think young kids appreciate this as much as they should, is that guys like you and I and John want to help people, right? But you have to put in your part of the, the effort, right? Like that's kind of what you're saying. If, so if a billion percent. Because yeah. at the end of the day, like, like one thing I realized, and this is through Ben and I as well, is like how valuable your time is. And that's something that like I started thinking about. It also helped me get like better on calls. Like I wouldn't waste time. And like, like when you realize how valuable your time is and actually like you can apply a number to it, just look at your salary and like divide a number. Like, is this person worth this amount of time? And you give them the first chance and then see how they, they respond. But like at the end of the day, if they're not like giving you what like you need to see to like, see that they have promise to see that they're driven like what's the point in spending like your valuable time with those people like that's not what you should be doing so true it's so true and you get i think you get that clarity as you get further along in your career and i mean i'm just thinking like back to the high school football when we were at mansfield we were like we we were my senior year, we won every single game. We were state champions, and we played in the juniors. Rarely, they got on the field when it was a blowout. But we always, in practice, we would get so so on them if they missed a block or you know forgot who was on punt return because these kids, we just wanted to teach them that that was super valuable. And I remember they were like, "Well, we don't even play. Like you guys will play Foxborough. We're not even going to get on the field." And then we were like, "Yeah, but this is for next year." You know, this is for next year. And they, they ended up winning. And then they were just as hard in the class before. So we went up, Mansfield went on a long run um, after we did that in 2003. And it's just like, had great leadership. Yeah, yeah, it's just like we, we our leader was top notch. He was like, don't miss a block. I don't care how big the guy is. Don't miss a block. And you kind of breed that same thing in sales, you know. So it's good. It's cool to hear you say it's two way street because I think or JR say that it's good. So uh yeah, I mean, Jr. always has this one last question. Jr., I'll let you ask it, but uh, I, I have two two last questions. Okay, because me and me and Chris have a, a mentor in common. Uh, he's John. You just heard about him, like the first episode, right? The 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 namesake of the of our podcast, Merchants of Change, is Jim McInerney, who's like you know the coaching tree of sales leadership. Doesn't get much better than that guy, right? Like you look at VPs and. CROs around the country that grew up at EMC and then Turbonomic and you know then then even Bitsight he's he's producing more more sales leaders than probably any human being ever has. I would love to hear your favorite Jimmy Mac story if you've got one teed up for us. Oh, there's so many. I just spend so many time, so much time in his office. I'll I'll have a funny one that we had. We had this inside joke because like when Ben became the CEO, he was still full-time um, managing director at Bain VC. So he would like 
wrap up his day at Bain and then walk in at like 6, 6.30 p.m. And I remember Jim and I used to just like try to wait him out and just like just to show face because he's the new CEO. And like I had a, uh, a, a desk that like I could see Jim's face from like inside his office and him and I'd be like, what is going on here? It'd be like 8.30 at night and Ben would be in his office and like we'd be like falling asleep at our desk. And we had this inside joke that Ben had a twin brother named Ken Nye and that they just like switched off like sides. And like, we used to say the tell because Ben like used to have an eye twitch, that his other eye would twitch. And that's how you know it was Ken. And like, we would crack up laughing. It's like, yo, is Ken coming in now? Like, like, ready to go and like nervous about leaving. Um, but like thinking back to a more serious story, he was the person that, like helped me find my own more than like, any other person i like, remember vividly whether it was like metrics meetings or when i went up in front of the company i was trying to be someone i was not i was like trying to replicate other sales leaders and like their styles and like i remember yo tom was like very professorial and like matt o'brien was like was, like super energetic and like steve was like the kind of everything uh, put together and, like he and i was trying to be very a lot like yo tom and he was like dude like that's not you like you are like hysterical, you know, your business, you're a great leader. Like stop trying to be someone you're not and just get comfortable with who you are. And like, I took it home. And like, I remember after that, I started every single like time I went up in front of the company, I would start off with a joke. And what I found was number one, it made me so much more comfortable in speaking in front of the company and it got everyone to listen. So now like people would be get upset if I didn't speak at company lunch. Cause like, I was the one that had everyone cracking up. I still remember making fun of JR and saying he would be Blanche from the Golden Girls if I had to pick one of them because there's three <laughs> other sales leaders. And like, but like, this would have everyone in stitches, but then they'd, they'd all be captivated by what I was saying. So like, not only did it make me comfortable, but it also like got the point across and like uh, understood by the, everyone I was speaking to. So I was like, all right, this is what I'm going to do like all the time. And like, it was just such a better path than like, trying to just be someone I'm not. That's like the only advice, like that's, that's advice you can only get from somebody that knows you like a, a true mentor knows, you know, Hey, I gotta, this is what I need to say to this kid. And this is yeah. when I need to say it. And I think Jimmy Mack just has that, that, that knack for understanding what people need to hear at the right time uh, to get them to that next level. Um, and I definitely noticed that change in you too. And, uh, even though I was the brunt of probably like 80% of your jokes, it was well, worth you it. Take it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I can't argue the Blanche thing. I mean, the record speaks for itself there. Uh, <laughs> all right. So this is, this is the last one, Chris. Um, we talk a lot about professionalism, like, you know, talking about, you know, um, my dad used to say when we were little, like a lot of people play hockey, but, but, not a lot of people are hockey players, right? Like there's a difference and a lot of people sell software, but not a lot of people are software sales professionals, right? So we think the highest praise you can give to a salesperson is calling them like this, this, this guy, this girl is a pro. Um, so, so what does being a pro mean to you in this industry? I think being a pro at the end of the day is someone that really looks at their craft and always asks how they can get better. And that's like the asking the people around them. Like when I first got to Turbo, um, or I got first got to Vercel, 
I met with every single person in sales in every single department leader in our go-to-market in the first two weeks because I wanted to learn everything I can about the business and form these relationships. And you see other people join, and I think more about Turbo. The people that didn't do well were the ones that just came in and just like waited. It like it waited to be told what to do, waited to uh, f- find out when the next training was and like didn't put anything on themselves and didn't like add unexpected value. I think that's like some of those valuable people on your team are the ones that like bring new ideas, take different approaches, share that feedback with the team consistently versus like someone that's not a professional. They want the transcript and they want they want the template and the slides and they're just going to like go through the motions it's like the people that think critically about the business and like try to ask questions and like i mean asking questions and being intellectually curious are also like huge parts of that and like the sports side of that i was alluding to it earlier it's like who's working out like who's trying to get stronger who's trying to get faster who's who's reading the playbook like it, it, the most embarrassing thing in the world is in JV basketball, when a kid doesn't know the plays, like these are not sophisticated plays. Like these right. people don't care. And like right. I think about that, it's the same exact thing. Yeah. Accountability and giving, it's like giving a shit, like give a shit. Yeah. Like, you know, this, if this is going to be your profession, like maximize it, make the most out of it, become a student of the game and like do the work and like get out of your comfort zone. Right. Like that's oh. it. Accountability. I love that. Great answer, dude. Love um, it. Chris, this was awesome. Thank you so much for uh, for hanging with John and I today, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. Really, really love it. Millis Mohawks, baby. Love it. Go. Exactly. Drop the Mohawks name soon, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love it. I Thanks for the time, guys. Thanks, buddy. All right. Bye. This wraps up this episode of Merchants of Change. If you enjoyed this episode, the most meaningful way to say thanks is to submit a review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're interested in working with us, please come find us at www.shiftgroup.io.